This episode of Promised Land uses audio clips that contain language and subject matter that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. I've never lied to you. Your Bible is full of lies. Your sky god makes no sense. If he was all perfect, why don't he come down and do something? If he can heal everybody in a minute, why doesn't he heal them all? Why do he make all these different races to fight and to kill? Why does he bring some into the world born blind? America, 1973. Christian America. Jehovah's America. Bible America, 1973. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain by following me. Why don't you deny yourself? Why don't you deny yourself? Why don't you say yes to this cause and no to that slave system? I thank you. I thank you. I thank you because my words are spirit and my words are life. This is a revolution that will heal you. This is a father that will save you. This is one that will shepherd you through every storm. The Promised Land was a place where slaves could throw off their chains and be free. In later times, it was a place where people could go to rid themselves of poverty or racism, a place of equality and of freedom. Jim Jones would preach of this modern day location, a place where people's temple can be rid of their enemies, be rid of a nuclear threat, and be rid of anything that could threaten the people's temple. He knew that getting his members away from society and away from everyone else, he would be able to keep them loyal. Jones knew Guyana would be the perfect fit for his promised land. The location was remote, the ethnic makeup worked in his favor, and the national language was English. He raised the idea with the planning commission during one of their meetings, with the location already set in his mind, but wanted to make them believe it was a team effort that they came up with the final location on their own. On October 8, 1973, the seven-member board of directors for the People's Temple voted unanimously that Guyana, South America was the most suitable place for the People's Temple agricultural mission. Jones didn't announce the new location just yet to the general temple population. For now, he made sure he continued to warn his congregation of a potential martial law and of the impending concentration camps. Now it was just up to make sure Guyana would allow them to build their mission in their country. I listen to them talk about planned takeovers. I listen to them to talk about it like it was just an ordinary Sunday school picnic. And you don't have to be very far off to realize it's in your newspapers. Task Force warns nation to get ready for riots and to get ready for martial law and to get ready for concentration camps. This is in the Hearst Press just this week. Get ready for identification marks to be put on your body and an identification number even necessary tattooed on you like the, our corporations have done in the Union of South Africa. You say, America wouldn't do that. Don't talk to me about what America would not do. We're doing it in the Union of South Africa. We rule that country now. Ford and all those DuPonts and Rockefeller, they're running the Union of South Africa and our black and brown and poor people cannot even be out after, sun, uh, out after sundown and there's a tattoo on their arm and if they don't show that tattoo, they go to jail. And it's not only that. 
Not only that, friend, five and a half million in Union in South Africa last year, 1976, were sent out to the concentration camps of the Bangtu region to die because there's not enough food. And you can look on your TV if you've been looking, but some people are looking at everything but what the truth ought to be. It'll show tears, great lines of graveyards where our babies, brown and black babies, are dying in the Union of South Africa. So what's that got to do with us? Because the same corporations that rule this country, the same megalomaniacs, the same elitists, the same ruling class, Ford, DuPont, Chrysler, General Motors, they're running the show over there. And if they will do that to our people over there, they'll do it here when the trouble comes. In December 1973, Jim Jones, Marcelin, Carolyn Layton, Archie Yimus, Tim Stone, Dick Trope, and Johnny Brown made their way to Georgetown, the capital of Guyana, to be interviewed by the Prime Minister. They made their case in front of top officials about how they would contribute back to society and the economy and felt the interview went very well because they were offered a plane ride out to visit a potential location for the ministry to begin building. Little did Jones or other temple members know, the Guyanese government needed them just as much as they needed the land. After Guyana broke away from the UK, they lost their military power, and because they were a poor country, they had a very small military presence. With Venezuela claiming to own more land that was in Guyana, government officials worried that with no military power, they were susceptible to attack that they would not be able to defend. With Americans living in the jungle, not far from the border, this would provide them with protection from Venezuela, knowing that American citizens would act as a buffer. This was ultimately a win-win for both People's Temple and the Guyanese government to get what they both wanted and needed. The People's Temple was able to lease 3,000 acres of land with the potential to gain more land after five years. Jones of course named the land Jonestown. In March 1974, Jim Jones sent a half dozen members down to Guyana to start the survey and clearing of land. More members followed shortly after to help with the building. Jones was in a rush to get this project started and built for the first new settlers to arrive no later than August. So the members known as the Pioneers worked day in and day out through harsh jungle conditions to start clearing and construction with the help of local Amerindians. Back in America, Jones finally told his general congregation more details about the promised land, a tropical paradise waiting for all those who wanted to move. But first, they needed money. Construction was proving to be hard on the workers and the machinery. Repair costs were sometimes in the thousands, and they needed members to donate 25% of their weekly salaries to what they called an Operation Breadbasket. Envelopes were made and members would put their money inside and write their incomes on the outside so it could be checked to make sure each family was donating their share to the cause. I'm telling you, you can have life. Lots of you can have a great deal more if you just come and go with us because it's hard for you to know, you know, you have to try the Spirit. I can say a lot of things here tonight, but you come out and see how I live, you'll see I practice what I preach. I can't go out there. I told you to get on there tonight. We'll hold up the bus long enough. You go home and get your little bit of things. You can take your wraps and put them in a gunny sack and come on with us. Sure do need the truth now. We need to build heaven on earth. 
We better do something about this earth. I want you to look as you go out and see a little bit of heaven. How many? How much heaven? Not four square. 27,000 acres. Big, beautiful homes. Apostolic commune. Great big dining room. 200 different crops. Mineral streams growing up. No, no impure air. Never gets cold. Never gets too hot. Ah, I'm talking about a little bit of heaven on earth. Say, I'm waiting. No, I'm going to die to go to heaven. Okay. Each to their own. If you want to think you're going to die, you'll die. But I believe it said, as a man thinketh in his mind, so is he. I'd like to encourage you to think about living. With everything going so quickly and smoothly, Jones felt that he was unstoppable. And when he felt this way, something was always bound to happen. A Los Angeles movie theater was put on police radar after complaints of gay men soliciting sex at the theater. Police went undercover, dressing in plain clothes, either hanging out around the bathrooms or sitting in seats waiting to catch anyone who would try to solicit them. On December 13th, an officer was sitting in the balcony watching Dirty Harry when he saw a man motioning for him to come over. The officer stood and followed this man into the bathroom. The man proceeded to masturbate in front of the police officer and was immediately arrested. James Warren Jones was charged with lewd conduct and his bond was set for $500, which he paid immediately. Jones found a doctor to provide a medical excuse for what happened. His prostate had been enlarged, and he was told when he was in discomfort that he was to jump up and down in place, and that's what he was doing, not masturbating. The judge agreed to dismiss the charges, but Jones had to sign a stipulation basically stating what he was arrested for was justified. When the police officer found out about the dismissal, he tried to fight to get the case reopened, but the judge refused. As of now, Jones had bigger things to worry about than if drop charges would come back to bite him at a later time. Plus, he had a perfectly good medical reason behind what happened. And of course, LAPD were always out to get their enemies. Surely they were retaliating against him for the day the temple members were arrested, and he made a scene at the police station. After Jones's arrest, he started preaching more about how everyone is a homosexual. Those only engaged in heterosexual intercourse were compensating for what they knew they really were. Jones would often have a member stand in front of everyone and announce that they were homosexual. It was clear that this was a way of Jim dealing with his own bisexuality. Tim Stone would never admit he was a homosexual when Jones would ask him and was the only one who would not get punishment for refusing to say so due to his legal role in the temple. But this was something that also threw Stone over the breaking point of being a People's Temple member. It was then he decided he would soon slip out of the temple when he felt the time was right. I will stand up for lesbian rights, just like I stand up for Indian rights, just like I stand up for black rights. Anyone that's oppressed, uh, the consenting adult has a right to do what they want to in the bedroom. Oh, you, you people. You act like you don't know. Now, let me tell you, the Kinsey report said in 1948, half of the men had had a homosexual experience. And I'm not speaking from experience, I'm speaking from your experience. 
So don't look around here like you're so sacred. You all know what I'm talking about. Jones was constantly preaching to his members about the promised land. He would ask members to raise their hands if they wanted to move and live in the promised land. There were enough hands raised each time to assure him that he could easily fill the previously arranged 500 to 600 residents planned. Eventually, the set date of August for the first residents came and went. Construction expenses were piling up, as well as other roadblocks not planned for. The pioneers discovered that the soil was not compatible for all the vegetation they had planned for, and were taught new ways to farm with the soil they had by the Amerindians. But this took more time away from the deadline. In December 1974, Jones and a few members went down to visit Jonestown and see firsthand the progress that was being made. During this visit, Jones announced himself to be the self-appointed bishop and asked to conduct a guest service at one of the local Catholic churches called Sacred Heart. Jones did his usual socialist remarks followed up with his healings. After the service, the pastor of the church voiced his disapproval of how Jones behaved. He brought attention of the faked healings to the prime minister, chief of staff. But because the Guyanese government needed the Americans to move there, they chose to do nothing about the complaint. But because of it, Jim Jones and the People's Temple were not welcomed in any churches in Guyana. Due to the poor soil in Jonestown, the harvesting was slow moving. Jones had preached to his members back in the States of lush foliage and a beautiful tropical paradise. He needed to find a way to prove this to his people. So he and Elmer Myrtle, the acting temple photographer, set off to local villages to buy produce where they set it up in fields at Jonestown to take pictures to bring back with them as proof of the fields of vegetables and fruit he had promised. Everyone in Jonestown at this time knew of the faked photo, but no one ever came forward to speak out against it. I'm really in a dilemma as to what we're going to do about that. Because you see, this church guarantees we provide for our people from the cradle to the great beyond. The promised land's 27,000 acres. We have a boat, a beautiful boat. We have tractors and backhoes and bulldozers and gardens and fields and commune, lovely houses and apartments, individual houses too. We don't make everyone live in one barn. We're not that kind of communalist. This trip was significant for the temple in another way. Jones decided to bring Maria Katsaris on this trip and started a sexual relationship with her that would be one of his main relationships in the temple going forward. After their relationship started, Maria broke out of her shell of being timid and shy and became a real leader for the temple. She soon took on a leadership role in the planning commission. Jones knew that taking on another permanent partner would affect the other permanent women in his life. Marceline had come to accept Jones for what he was and did not show if his extramarital affairs affected her or not. But he wanted to show Carolyn Layton that she was crucial in her own way. So in the summer of 1974, Carolyn Layton disappeared from the People's Temple. Members were told she was on a secret mission and would be gone for some time. Over time, the story was elaborated on by Jones to include a secret mission to Mexico where she had been arrested and put in jail, that she was being tortured and refused to give up temple secrets to her captors. Then it spiraled into Carolyn was sent to Mexico to acquire components for an atomic bomb to use as leverage for respect from the government and that she acquired all the pieces except the detonator. Carolyn returned to the People's Temple in spring of 1975 with a baby. 
Her father later recalled Carolyn reaching out to her parents, announcing she was pregnant, and asked if she could stay with them until she delivered her baby. They agreed, and Carolyn spent her months pregnant with her parents, where Jones would occasionally spend the night with her. On January 31, 1975, Carolyn gave birth to her son, Jim John. Immediately after, she asked her father to perform a marriage ceremony between herself and Temple member Michael Prokes. Her father was shocked as he knew Jim Jones was the father of Jim John, but he reluctantly agreed, and Jim John's full name was recorded as Jim John Prokes, who was often referred to by his nickname, Chemo. Jones spent most of the summer of 1975 promoting the Promised Land to Temple members, encouraging members to think about going there. Most members truly did think he wanted everyone to go, but in reality, Jones knew that Jonestown could only hold 500 to 600 people. There was a limit of food and housing only built for that number, but he still hoped to bring at least half of the 4,000 to 5,000 temple members. A priority list was made on who should be the first to go. The priority people were younger men and women who could endure the labor and jungle conditions, teens and youth who couldn't keep out of trouble, and elderly with pensions that could offset costs of maintaining the mission in Guyana. Whether on the priority list or not, all members were urged now more than ever to give up everything they owned to the temple. Those who lived in communal living used to be able to provide themselves their own meals, but were now told to get all their meals from the temple. The meals provided were bare, usually peanut butter and bologna sandwiches, or whatever the temple could get from bakeries before they were ready to throw it away. Whatever sacrifices members had to make, he would remind them that it was for the greater good. Another sacrifice Jones continued to speak of often was how he was willing to die for socialism. Loyal members were not only supposed to devote their lives to socialism, but devote their death to it too. Jones said, quote, A good socialist does not fear death. It would be the greatest reward he could receive. He spoke of how individual suicide was a waste, and that mass suicide would send a message to future generations to stand for what they believed in. Any sooner than it has to. But death comes to all. Revisionist, apologist, opportunist, capitalist. Death comes to all. The only thing that makes nobility is in what we stand for. In life, you learn to roll with the punches and punch back until you win or lose. If you are indeed a true internationalist, if you are a true Marxist-Leninist, an avowed communist, dying will end a revolutionary struggle only. Dying, as I said, comes to all. Capitalist, opportunist, revisionist, whatever. Dying comes to all. But that dying then cannot be noble unless it is a revolutionary death. And that we are prepared for with sensitivity, understanding, and the will to live. We will build internal strength. We will build every day as if we had a lifetime. If we have to meet a combatant, the enemy of the people, a class enemy, mercenaries, or whatever, on this eve or the morrow, we are certainly ready and able to meet revolutionary, de revolutionary death, which is the only way you can get out of this world and get out of it without having to come back to it or have a stricken conscience. 
Jones continued to push this topic to the general population and in planning commission meetings. In one planning commission meeting in September, things took a drastic turn. Jones brought out wine and said the temple grapes grew in abundance enough to make extra wine, and even though alcohol was prohibited, that everyone can have a glass that evening. After each member emptied their glass of wine, he informed them that they were in fact poisoned and they would all die within the hour. Of course, two of the planning commission members knew of Jones's plan and were in on it. As soon as the announcement was made, Patty Cartmel let out a scream and started running for the door. Mike Proke stood up and took out a pistol loaded with blanks and fired it several times at Patty, who fell to the floor moaning. Other members stayed in their seats, some staring off wondering what was happening, some not convinced, as Jones was known for making stories wilder than they were to make a point. Jones even asked members to describe how they were feeling. Some said they were feeling faint. After he heard how they were all feeling, he made a second announcement, letting them know they were not poisoned, that they had been tested to show their loyalty in the face of death. As he was explaining this, Patty Cartmel got back to her feet and sat down joining the others. It seemed that no one was going to question Jones on why he did this or even get angry with what happened. In retrospect, this should have been the first sign he could kill them at any point he chose, but it didn't seem to affect them in that way, or at least no one was saying anything about it. In 1975, the beatings had escalated to the point that it was just nauseating to be in a service, uh, having to listen to children scream hour after hour, and the punishments had gotten just bizarre beyond belief. Little children being electric shocked and, and having to stand for hours on a wall ledge. And He'd have um, everybody drink a cup of... Uh supposed to be wine or something and he say afterwards um, he would just drink some poison ha 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 you know you only have a half an hour left to live in October there was a significant defection that wasn't expected Elmer and Deanna Myrtle and their children had left the temple the Myrtles were very valuable members of the people's temple but the constant demands from Jones and the expected contributions was wearing on them they finally had enough after their daughter had been beaten badly during one of the meetings. They took all their belongings and the knowledge they had on Jim Jones in the People's Temple with them. In fear of Jones coming after them, they decided to legally change their names to Al and Jeannie Mills. And once they felt they were able to get by, without being on the temple's radar, they contacted local government officials to give their first-hand account on what happens inside the People's Temple. If Jim Jones should have acted on any defections, the mill should have been on the top of his list, but he had bigger things on his mind at this time and decided not to put his efforts into getting the mills back. A new mayor was about to be elected, and one of the candidates, George Moscone, was everything that the People's Temple would want a mayor to be. He was raised poor from a single-parent home. He was genuinely interested in helping residents of the city and had no problem traveling to be one-on-one -on -one with people. He represented the African-American, working class, and gay districts. He knew it was going to be hard to run against a longtime mayor and needed all the help and votes he could get. Willie Brown, the state assemblyman and friend of Moscone, 
knew just how to help and contacted Jim Jones in the People's Temple. Jones was able to deliver members to help with voting day, along with using his Greyhound buses to help pick up voters from all over the area and take them to vote and then drove them home. The letters office of the People's Temple also wrote hundreds of letters urging local residents to vote for Moscone. In the end, Moscone was able to win the election 51% to 49%, and it was all thanks to Jim Jones and the People's Temple. If it were not for them, he would not have won the election. Moscone and other local leaders started to attend some of the temple services and would happily participate in the singing and excitement of the service. Unknown to them, Jones was videotaping them because one can never be too careful. They might need to be reminded of their obligations to the People's Temple. It wasn't long before all kinds of influential people started attending People's Temple services, from local law officials, lieutenants, and activists. Jones made sure to record all conversations with these people, to play back to his congregation to prove his importance to his people, to show how much he was respected by prominent people outside the temple. By 1975, People's Temple had a significant amount of money. Jones was never truthful about how much money the temple actually had and wanted to keep it that way. He wanted to make sure he had additional funds for personal use since according to what he told people, he never made a dime off the temple. That he and his family lived off Marceline's income only. He needed a way to be able to pay for his family vacations and other personal expenses without there being a record. He asked Tim Stone to look into a way to separate accounts. He recommended opening accounts in Panama. Jones sent Stone down to Panama to do the initial paperwork and get the accounts set up, as well as sending other temple members to also open new accounts. Soon after this, Jones started depositing money into Swiss bank accounts as well. Money was then dispersed in Guyanese accounts, but those ones were not done in secret. Jones wanted Guyanese officials to see how much money was being brought into their country and how fast it was spent there. $200,000 was deposited, only to be spent right away as construction costs were still at a high, and they also had to pay for the extra help from the Amerindians they hired. Jones had a secret way to keep track of all money going in and out of the foreign bank accounts by writing codes on certain pages of a Bible he kept in his personal corridors. The only people to have access to this Bible was himself, Carolyn Layton, and Maria Katsaris. The temple bookkeeper estimated that the banks totaled around $8 million, when in fact the total was more around $30 million. Even with all this money dispersed in foreign bank accounts, Jones continued to hound members for all money they could spare, even sending around contribution baskets a second time if the total amount donated didn't meet his expectations. Members had no idea of the significant fortune the temple was sitting on right under their noses. No matter what they gave, it was never enough to Jim Jones. We talked it over with our children, explained to them that we were going to be quitting the church. Once you enter people's temple, you don't leave, or you don't leave very easily, because there were death threats, there was a lot of pressure from the congregation. And they said, well, Mom and Dad, we love you very much. And we just hope that when you do decide to quit the church, you move far away so we aren't the ones assigned to kill you. And these two girls were 16 at the time. And this is how thoroughly brainwashed we were. 
you couldn't convince anybody to leave. It, it had to be an individual decision inside yourself. And I simply spun on my heel and ran with my child out, got into my car, and he was, he was yelling my name as I left. Uh, he proceeded to call me. He told me that there would be an accident in which all three of us would be killed. So that's, that's the commitment that we all made when we finally decided to leave, that okay, we'll be killed for this, we'll probably be shot in the middle of the night or bombed or something, but it's better than going back. Promised Land is a cool-down media podcast. All audio clips for Promised Land come from the Jonestown Institute. For more information, visit their website at jonestown.sdsu.edu. Follow us on social media at Promised Land Cast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.